This is Macro Horizons, Episode 43, Reaccession Risk, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of November 4th. And as the holidays quickly approach, we're reminded of the astute client who noted, you can't spell mailing it in without I-A-N. Thanks again for that. views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian dot l-y-n-g-e-n at b-m-o dot com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. So the Fed cut rates signal that they're going to be on hold at least into the end of the year, all else being equal. We had stronger than expected GDP and the jobs report surprised on the upside. This leads us to the obvious question, are we in a soft landing scenario? A soft landing certainly has been Powell's objective and obviously the uh, FOMC as a whole. The risk assets appear to be responding accordingly with upward pressure on domestic equities. Rates overall are still low, not only in policy terms, but also further out the curve. Tins remain in a definable range with the upward bound two key levels we're watching, 186 and 191 being the key support levels in any significant downtrade. The shape of the treasury curve has performed to a large extent as one might have expected given the challenges that the Fed faces in communicating their decision to hold off on further rate cuts to assess the positive impact of the stimulus provided thus far. Our biggest concern going into the Fed was that we would see a much more significant curve flattening impulse. The fact that didn't materialize is constructive. It certainly is consistent with our near-term bearishness into the end of the year, although the quick rejection of 186 offers little solace to a near-term breakout in rates. The caveat there being that that occurred at the end of October, so there were month-end influences at play as well. The Fed's decision is also very consistent with the episodes that we saw in the 90s, and if anything, suggests that the period of policy stability will be comparable to those episodes, so call it six to eight months, which points toward the Fed on hold, certainly through the first quarter, if not into the second, setting up a very intriguing background for the upcoming election. Could easily envision a world in which the beginning of the year starts out on relatively strong economic sentiment, if not actual realized data, that then gives way to the realities of the data cycle, We don't necessarily anticipate a rolling over of the real economy, but rather simply a mean reversion versus the more ambitious expectations that we have typically seen priced in with the turn of the calendar. 
Presumably, this would subsequently lead to some downward pressure in risk assets, increasing equity vol at a time when the proximity of the election will certainly put some pressure on the administration to come up with some type of trade deal, whether it's truly comprehensive or not remains to be seen. And we're erring on the side of assuming that the phase one deal that has been talked about this week is ultimately all that we see from this process. So overall, as a theme, it was a largely as expected week in the treasury market that sets the stage for a bit of volatility into the end of the year as books are closed on 2019 and expectations further refined for 2020. So it certainly was an exciting week in the Treasury market in terms of both monetary policy as well as the real economic data. Obviously, the Fed has signaled that 75 basis points and a pause, resembling what we saw twice in the 90s, will be the most likely course for monetary policy as 2019 comes to an end. This was helped, at least the expectations of it, were helped by the fact that non-farm payrolls came in stronger than expected in October, and this was within the context of a drag of nearly 42,000 from the auto strikes, as well as another 20,000 from the census roll-offs. The unemployment rate did tick a bit higher to 3.6, but on an unrounded basis, it was very little changed at the same time in which we saw labor market participation increase. So overall, it was a strong employment report following a Fed that appears very willing to usher in a Santa pause in the month ahead. Dare I say this is what a soft landing looks like? And don't forget about Q3 GDP. It came in well above expectation. Broadly, kind of, we're reverting towards trend growth. If you got a soft landing, everything would kind of equilibrate towards more traditional trends. All of this, to me, begs a very simple question. We've had a Fed borderline hawkish, or at least saying rates are going to be on hold in their baseline scenario. We have better than expected GDP and a strong NFP print. Why are two-year yields lower than going into the FOMC meeting. Well, and and to the point, not only are two-year yields lower than in the run-up to the FOMC, but also the 10-year sector has benefited from a reasonable bid. Now, granted, the outperformance of the long end of the curve makes a reasonable amount of sense in that classic policy error signaling flattening. We have seen some of that emerge, although not as dramatic as one might have feared. Certainly a reinversion of the twos tens curve isn't on the radar at this point, which I'm taking away as a constructive signal, all things considered. The fact that we did emerge with a bid overall, I think to some extent, speaks to the ongoing relevance of the trade war. The headlines and some of the chatter that we saw toward the end of the week suggested that it will be difficult for a true comprehensive deal to be agreed upon between Washington and Beijing. A lot of talk about a phase one agreement, which presumably the low-hanging fruit that both sides are able to concede to. Dare I say that doesn't touch on the important issues such as intellectual property and longer trends that one could argue really were the entire purpose of the deal. 
at the end of the day, very consistent with our expectations for the administration to cobble together a window dressing style deal that really doesn't necessarily move the proverbial needle in terms of the broader trade balance. Nonetheless, the removing of the uncertainty will help risk assets and further put downward pressure on equity volatility and clear the way for the Fed to remain on hold well into the first quarter of 2020. So more generally, it seems that Powell set up a framework where everything's path dependent on whether there's a material shift in the outlook. I think the phrase he used was material reassessment. If we get some type of window dressing deal, I like the way you phrased that, would that constitute a material reassessment or would that kind of be their baseline? Well, I think the material reassessment he was referring to is really skewed toward the downside, at least in terms of growth. While a trade deal, window dressing or otherwise, would remove some uncertainty, I think all three of us are in agreement that we haven't yet reached a point where rate hikes are seriously back on the table. So removal of uncertainty at this stage, at least in my mind, is more justification for keeping rates on hold versus being forced to move again in December and maybe even into Q1 of 2020. So this all leads to the underlying question, is the direction of the U.S. economy at this point enough to convince investors that a recession is completely off the table and potentially at some point we will see a rate hike rather than a series of rate cuts in 2020? The short answer, at least from my perspective, as if I've ever given one, is no. We still have a enough economic data between now and the middle of 2020 that the pendulum of optimism could yet swing back in the direction of caution and a downturn. That said, I do take a fair amount of solace in this recent price action as well as the realized data itself if for no other reason then it's very consistent with the seasonal pressure higher in treasury yields that we have been anticipating i'll be the first to admit that the post-fed bid in the treasury market did take some of the proverbial wind out of our bearish sales although there are still several pivotal trading weeks left in this year and this next one in particular, I think, could offer a bit of a auction concessionary impulse. After all, we do get 10s and 30s on Wednesday and Thursday. And even though yields have fallen from their recent peaks, 1.86 being that line in the sand in 10s, the fact that they're still within the middle of the range, as we've said several times, should mean that the auction will bring out buyers, and we broadly expect 10s and 30s to be taken down with relative ease. However, for threes, we've reached an interesting development, and that is the Fed is no longer necessarily going to be cutting in the near term. And given how sensitive the three-year sector is to monetary policy, that removes what had been a pretty substantial tailwind for twos and threes in particular. So all else equal, when looking at the reception that threes are met with, it will be telling to see how the bid breaks down and what concern investors may have about the future path of rates and therefore the front end. How would you say that the Fed's decision to come in and be actively buying in the treasury market at this point influences the prospects for the auction? Now, obviously, the bulk of this is concentrated in the bill sector, and the fungibility between bills and threes isn't necessarily there in the traditional sense. However, the notion that the U.S. central bank is implicitly still actively monetizing the deficit can't be going completely unnoticed, can it? No, definitely not. And we've already seen a decent amount of compression in bills versus OIS. 
there is going to come a point where that starts to spill over into short coupons, which is undoubtedly a reality on many investors' radar, so should benefit probably twos more than threes, but a benefit nonetheless. One other thing we'd been paying attention to is whether Treasury might actually adjust issuance in response to the Fed's program. The idea being if the Fed is buying a bunch of bills, well, maybe you reduce some short coupon issuance, issue more bills, smooth bill supply fluctuations, and everybody's happy. When they did the analysis and looked into this, it really wasn't worth it. The few billion pickup you get in bill supply at the cost of coupon size volatility from their cost-benefit analysis didn't really play out, but that would have been one bullish tailwind for short coupons just from a supply-demand dynamic. It doesn't look like we're going to get that in coming months. Instead, I just kind of expect coupon sizes to stay on hold, whereas the bill market continues to handle all these fluctuations. We've made it this far without actually talking about one of the downside surprises that we saw in the economic data last week, and that was core PCE. Core PCE printed at 0.0 in September, and that brought the year-over-year pace down to just 1.7. Now, that was already aggregated into the third quarter GDP data, so one would be remiss to call it an actual surprise. However, the trajectory of pricing pressures into the end of the last quarter sets up Q4 to be a significant open question in terms of inflation, deflation, noflation, or how the Fed is going to choose to address the new realities of lower pricing pressures. And I would point out that that 0.0 number barely missed being 0.1. So, you know, we're probably getting too much into the weeds here, but it was like a 0.049% month over month. I think that actually meshes well with your broader point of non-deflationary pressure, but we're kind of at a weird inflection point where that number should be higher given GDP is coming in above forecast, given the labor market's tighter than we expect. The lack of acceleration there has to kind of be concerning for underlying price pressure. I'd make the argument that it creates a more complex situation for the Fed, which is actively in the process of trying to redefine its role in the market as more supportive of the return of inflation rather than riding on the credibility that they have of fighting inflation. One quick quirk with the data, I looked at had the Fed chosen core CPI instead of core PCE year over year, they actually would have been above 2%, something like half to 60% of the time over the past five years. Picking core PCE year over year instead means that they've only managed to hit their mark something like 10% of the time. So one of the awkward things with them having specifically defined what metric they're looking at is that they're tailoring policy to one reading of inflation rather than the general suite of different metrics. The flip side of that argument is if they did have a measure that showed inflation running hotter than core PCE, we would expect that the real GDP numbers would be even less impressive than we've seen over the course of the last several years. Again, that's the downside of an inflationary series that runs hotter than what we have seen. It's only a downside if you like positive economic growth. 
In fact, it's only a downside if you like positive economic growth in aggregate terms. One of the things that I continue to be impressed by is if we look at the ways in which different central banks around the world have started the process of refocusing on what matters in terms of true economic expansion, the Bank of Japan has done a brilliant job in focusing on per capita rather than aggregate growth. And at the end of the day, if you're faced with a aging population, a decreasing participation rate, why does the overall real economy need to continue to grow? This does lead to a question that I have gotten a fair amount over the course of the last several months. And John, I will pose it to you. What would it take in the current environment to actually increase potential GDP? And where do you see that coming from? So trying to put on my economist hat to answer that, I would turn to a solo growth model framework. And what I mean by that is you have productivity, you have capital, and you have labor. Call those the three big inputs into the economy. You know, productivity is going to do what it does. It's kind of hard to forecast, but you can say maybe that's 2% a year. Capital, well, capital deepening Advanced economies have capital deepening. Of course, you could improve infrastructure. You could invest heavily in more automation, robotics, improve computing power, what have you. Fair enough. That'll keep going. But it's not obvious outside of a large infrastructure program or government-sponsored mass investment in technology that we would see that kind of impulse. And then you have the labor side. So you can either think of labor in aggregate terms or education augmented terms. You can either make people better educated or increase the number of people. And the reason I walk through all of these is if we're getting to a point where population is not growing as fast or declining, how much of that decline in population will offset the natural positive transitions in productivity or the natural positive transitions in education? You put them all together, it's really kind of hard to get a large-scale sustainable increase in GDP growth, especially once the demographic factors become increasingly binding. And also on the topic of demographics and education, there is an educational alignment issue that is difficult in the current environment to ignore. Anecdotally, we hear often that employers are struggling for qualified candidates for a series of positions while there remains a large underemployed but reasonably well-educated segment of the labor force. This also brings us back to one of my core consumption concerns on the demographic front, and that is the massive increase in student debt, which has really been focused on that core consuming cohort, which is that 25 to 40-year-old age group, has a limiting impact on the incremental dollar of consumption. And while we can contemplate what it might take to increase potential GDP for the overall economy, at the end of the day, if we don't see the type of consumption and credit creation that we would typically need at this point in the cycle, there will be a correction, even if it is relatively short-lived. Your point on student loans is, I think, a very important one, especially for a generation that I'm a member of. A senior member of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But student loans to me are fascinating, right? Like, in theory, you want to match the liability against your asset. Well, if you borrow to fund a career, say, that asset is a 30-year window. 
So you want the liability to be 30 years to offset that. That's why housing mortgages are 30 years, right? It's, it's a long duration product. What the structure of the student loan market is forcing the younger cohort to do is fund a 30-year asset and then pay off the liability in a few years. That creates an imbalance, a distortion. And I think, Ian, you're absolutely right. Not only does it curtail household formation, real estate investment, what have you, but it also just restricts access to credit. Like, If a lot of millennial types wanted to get a mortgage or wanted to get a car loan, this is a substantial binding constraint and one that seems that we need either a policy solution for or some type of evolution in the private sector to better reflect the underlying economics. Just another thing millennials are ruining. But at least they gave us avocado toast. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have a series of incoming fundamental information to deal with, not least of which being ISM non-manufacturing. However, the broader tone has already been set by the combination of the Fed, GDP, and the employment report. To a lesser extent, ISM manufacturing as well, which improved from September in the month of October, but didn't reach expectations. This has left the Treasury market to trade in a relatively definable range, one that we struggle to call exciting at this point. There has been a fair amount of magnetism around the 175 level in 10-year yields, not particularly surprising, although as the Fed continues to indicate that it is transitioning toward a period of on-hold monetary policy, it will be interesting to see, if not informative, how the market takes down this week's supply. And then toward the middle of November, we have the inflation series with core CPI on November 13th, core PPI on the 14th, and of course, retail sales as well on the 15th of November. Recall that the September retail sales print was surprisingly weak, and as we approach the holiday shopping season, any indication that consumption is waning will be useful in contemplating the medium-term outlook for policy rates. It's difficult to envision any piece of data between now and the December FOMC meeting really derailing the Fed's intention to be on hold, except perhaps a remarkably disappointing employment report at the beginning of next month. But as they say, that is decidedly a tomorrow problem. As it currently stands, the combination of range definition as the bearish stochastics continue to be worked off in the treasury market really does bode for a sideways grind to rebuild a volume bulge with the notion that we could see another retest of the upper end of the range on a concession for the November refunding, if nothing else. As we think about the year ahead, it's important to bear in mind that while we might have a slightly bearish bias for the next several weeks, we ultimately believe that the market is in the process of defining the new center of the range that will be in place for the next 12 months. If we look historically, the 10-year has tended to trade 
in a 100 to 125 basis point range in any 12-month period. So this indicates a couple important things to keep in mind in 2020. First, we're operating under the assumption that the new center of the range is somewhere between 175 and 150, as opposed to somewhere between 2 and 225. The first quarter will clearly offer more context for this. Nonetheless, this certainly opens up the possibility for a period in which 10-year yields trade with a two-handle, call it somewhere between 2 and 225, before more durable buying interest comes in, and on the flip side, with a nod to the traditional seasonal patterns, as we look forward to the second and third quarter in 2020, presumably we'll see very typical downward pressure on rates, and this would put on the radar a test of the record low 10-year yields with a potential establishment of new lows in the run-up to the presidential election. The political process introduces a reasonable amount of event risk. Our primary focus at this moment is the basic of trading the party. So if Trump appears poised to retain the White House, we'd call that a classic risk on with negative implications for the Treasury market. And if there's a moment in which the Democrats look likely to make the transition into the executive branch, then we would become increasingly nervous about the sustainability of record high equity prices in the U.S. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. As holiday gift lists come into focus and the line between naughty and nice is drawn, we'll offer the observation that every good podcast needs a sound effects board. Laugh track. Ugh, just not the same. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts,
contracts and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, we'll rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.